Creative Babble. By now, you most likely have an opinion on Michael Torres, and you're probably wondering, why is he even talking with me? I've wondered that myself. But over time, it's becoming clearer. So how, how, how bad am I going to come on looking out of this? My goal is not to make you look bad or make them look bad. I kind of just want to lay out everything in front of everybody. I didn't put 60 acres of ruins in North Savannah. That would have been fucking awesome if I did, though. Jesus, that would have been cool. His stories sound very far-fetched. But then again, someone had to discover King Tut's tomb, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and Rosetta Stone. Maybe Michael Torres is up there with the greatest explorers of all time. And if he is the real deal, a simple Google search of his name puts everything in question. And so how, how do you, Michael Torres, come back from this? Oh, I, I am back from it. I mean, you know, streaming services run out of content middle of next year. You're the second person to contact me this week for an interview. I mean, it's sexy. It, it's uh, the authentication, the, the story behind it, the finds. So what's in it for Michael Torres? I quickly realized that he is after the biggest treasure of them all, the silver screen. He told me that he's working on a documentary for a major streaming service. When I asked him which production company is he working with, he didn't say. But over time, the truth came out. There is no production company. Michael and his business partner are self-financing this documentary. Okay, uh, look towards the grass, all like adventure-like, like you're looking for a great discovery. And I have to admit, Michael Torres would make an excellent TV personality. I would totally watch his show. But put aside his cavalier personality, there are some serious questions about his professional integrity. And Michael tells me that's part of his charm. It's interesting. Yeah. Can't, can't argue that. I'm a pirate. No matter what you say about me, it's probably not the worst thing I've ever done, even if it was true. <laughs> and I embrace that. Michael Torres is a self-proclaimed modern pirate. And not to overplay the whole pirate theme, but there's an interesting parallel going on here. Back in the golden age of pirates, one might think that the goal of the pirate was to take over the prize ship. But think about it. The pirate doesn't want to fight. They want the gold. A pirate's goal is not to capture the ship, but to take the treasures it carries with as little fire exchange as possible. Plus, the less the struggle, the less the damage to the pirate's ship. So what are some of the tactics that pirates use to capture a ship? First, a pirate has to choose the right target, a target that carries more loot than it carries crew. In our story, Perhaps the target is a penny stock company on the over-the-counter exchange. Now it's time to plan the attack. The pirate sits and waits for the perfect vessel to sail by. Pirates were known to fly a false flag in order to lure the prize ship closer to them. Maybe they acted like they were in distress, or maybe it was some other reason. As the ship gets closer, the pirates then raise their skull and crossbone flag and fire a warning shot. The whole point of this is to cause panic and hope that the other guy surrenders without a fight. In the tale of Seafarer versus Torres, there are millions of stocks at stake. 
In the lawsuit, Kyle Kennedy and Seafair Exploration want Torres to surrender the 61 million stocks given to him. Torres claims that this is extortion and that Seafair's plan all along was to plunder the money that is rightfully his. But Seafair says that they would have never been in this mess if Torres hadn't pretended to be someone he's not. So who's the real pirate in this story? As you can tell, it's not that simple. I'm Javier Leva, and this is Pretend. Stories about real people pretending to be someone else. Where'd you get the bug for hunting treasures? Where did that come from? Ooh, I was 11. I found I was snorkeling in Charleston Harbor, and I found a 40-pounder cannonball used in the siege of Charleston. Pulled it up. The, I pulled it off the pulled it off the bottom of the harbor. And you know, my mom was into antiques, mostly French and and uh, German, and she would go through them. Do you still have it? Yeah. <laughs> and so. Oh, yeah. So you find this as a child, but when does it become like a serious thing for you? Probably in Turkey when I broke into the catacombs. And <laughs> why'd you do that? I wanted to see what was down there. And I started like getting around into places that weren't, haven't been visited in hundreds and hundreds of years. I started chiseling shit off of walls, taking Roman gladius, basically grave robbing. So then you raided these catacombs in Turkey and then what? How'd you make a career out of this? I realized there was gold and silver there. <laughs> Antiquities are are extremely rare. It, it's hard. Very rarely do people find something of cultural significance. Very rarely do people actually get out there and find this stuff. What is it about your personality that makes you a better treasure hunter or pirate? My ability for abstract thought and reason. There has to be somebody out there who has worked with Michael Torres who I could talk to. Someone who could tell me if this guy is serious or not. Torres suggested I call his old boss, Brian Steller. I'm a reporter working on a story about Michael. That's exciting. So how do you how do you know Michael Torres? So I've known Michael for about just about two years now. We met at Talus. Talus is a company that designs and builds electrical systems for aerospace, defense, transportation. I mean, it's a legit company. Now, I don't have any proof that Michael Torres ever worked here, and I don't even know if Brian Steller worked here either. However, his LinkedIn profile does look legit for whatever that's worth. He was working my Iridium program. I was the project manager plus program manager. He was my systems engineer lead. What, how was your relationship working with him? Was it a good experience? Yeah, Michael was a great guy. Michael was very, very sharp, very, very smart gentleman. Uh, Michael found the systems engineering was very easy to do and he always did great work from design to requirements to working with the other engineers be it hardware software rf which is radio frequency get along seemed to get along great with everybody were you one that hired him i was i was part of the hiring process so yes and what, what kind of struck you about him when you first met him well michael comes from boston 
originally. I was from the New England area, myself included. Knowing knowing people in New England, people in New England are very hard workers. Mm-hmm. You know, if the folks are if they're raised in, in the Florida or further south, the the work ethic is just what I've always found has been different. Brian Steller went on some rant about Michael Torres being from the Northeast and how Floridians are lazy. I try not to take any offense to this. So he's from New England, and so you kind of like his work ethic, but what did that have to do with Florida? I guess I missed that part. It's just, you know, it's just, you know. um, Anyway, that's not important. We continued our conversation. So you hired him, and you were part of the team that hired him, and uh, what kind of projects did he lead? It was a development project called Iridium. It's with the it's the next gener next generation satellite communications. Basically, Michael Torres worked on satellites and other communication equipment. And did you know anything about Michael's interest in treasure hunting? After he was hired, you know, we became really good friends. That's where I saw that he was really interested in all the treasure hunting, and I actually volunteered and went out on a couple of treasure hunts. Just wasn't for just wasn't for me. It was a really cool experience. And what I really noted was that Michael not only was he really good as a systems engineer in, in the engineering environment, right? He holds a PhD there, but he brings that same strong work ethic to the treasure hunting business. And lo and behold, every single well, the two times that I went out with him, you know, we found some pretty cool stuff and I know up in the Carolinas just recently, he uncovered some really neat stuff. Yeah, he's, a, he's definitely a very interesting guy, and I could talk to him for hours. When you hired him, did you ever question anything about his background in terms of his PhD or his military records? The HR people take care of that. Mm-hmm. That's not, that, wasn't for, that wasn't for me to take care of. Anybody who comes into the Talus or works in a potential DOD environment, their backgrounds are, are checked. When I would get an applicant, it didn't, it would, they were already pretty much, they were already vetted through the uh, HR process. So. Yeah, that makes sense. A large company like that, they have to do their due diligence. Take the, the question of his education background or professional background aside. As an employee, he was a functional employee and competent at his job. You wouldn't have noticed that maybe something was false about what he was No, saying. he could not. Mm-hmm. No, I never, never, never would question any of that based upon his work. Brian Steller says that Torres knows his stuff. He could not only talk the talk, but he was a guy who led teams and wrote system requirements. His work was, was never a question. I, I don't know how familiar you are with some of the controversies that he's been involved with lately. I know that there's like a, a lawsuit in Florida with, with the treasure company. The only thing I know about that is the, is that what what I read right? There was yeah. a story that popped up, and that's 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 what I read. And again, anybody I guess anybody can write anybody a story on anybody. I know Michael. I don't. I would never get any of what was what they accuse him of in the article. I just don't see it. Like I said, I've been around him enough. You know him for two years. You hired him. You work with him. He seemed legit. He doesn't. It doesn't. Doesn't seem legit to me. He is legit. Like I said, as far as treasure and everything that he says that's around or there, I mean, he's just. It. It seems to always be there. So I've never seen. Never. No reason to doubt anything that he's done, said all around. As far as I can tell, he's always been a great guy. 
In the last episode, Michael Torres stumbled upon what he called at the time a mass Jewish grave. There were headstones littered for half a mile along the river near Bonaventure Cemetery. Out of context, this seems really foul. Desecrated Jewish headstones? Was this a hate crime? Or was the city of Savannah just clearing out graves in order to make room for more? The implications are horrible. So what is this all about? Surely there has to be a logical explanation for all of this, right? So I called up Richard Gervasi, the cemetery director for the city of Savannah. I, I can tell you this much. The entire site is, is a historic site, also a cemetery, owned by the city of Proper, the city of Savannah. Mm-hmm. I don't know the story Michael Torres is telling you, but nothing he is finding is any secret to anybody but himself. Okay. He didn't do any major discovery. You're talking property that that the city's owned since the 30s, and and granted, yes, all of Savannah has a lot of history. He didn't just come into town and and randomly find some site that was un, unknown to to anyone. Before we get into the desecrated Jewish headstones, let's talk about the iron casket that Michael Torres supposedly found near Bonaventure Cemetery. Torres now believes that this casket may belong to the Polish military leader, General Kazimierz Pulaski. So I asked Richard Gervasi about this. Yeah, so that rectangular iron, what he's calling a casket. First it's of all, is it a casket? We had an archaeologist look at it. It's not. It's not a casket. What What could it, it be then? Um, we don't know because the archaeologist didn't do a full excavation of the site. Mm-hmm. He basically just did kind of an observation, but he did verify that it's not a casket. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, is working in, in what I do, it's way too thick of an iron to be any sort of casket. But in all fairness to Michael Torres, he actually did discover something new and worthy of an investigation. Whether it's an iron casket or not, a report produced by a nonprofit archaeological group finds that this rectangular box has, quote, important archaeological potential. The archaeologist who examined the site after the synagogue reported Torres' finds says that there is no evidence of human remains. In fact, this box appears to be a Confederate artillery battery. So that could be remnants of that. It could be remnants of an old bridge. Mm-hmm. It could. So we're not denying that. Hey, the site in itself has historical and archaeological significance. We don't deny that at all. Okay. What we do deny is his story of, you know, what he claims to have found. So maybe it's not what Torres thinks it is, but there's no doubt that he actually found something no one else did. Now let's talk about the Ming Dynasty pottery that Torres found along the marsh. How does Gervasi explain that? Where he's looking, the sites he's looking, yeah. you have to understand, there was, and in the late 1800s and in the 1900s, there, there was multiple buildings. There was a plantation that, that once stood there, a mansion. And the, when that mansion burned, a lot of those rooms were ultimately just bulldozed to the side. Again, it was a 40-room mansion. It was comparable to the Biltmore. That tells you anything. Yeah. Um, That's huge. He was, he was ultimately like a Carnegie. So let me get this straight. Torres believes that this is the site of the missing colonial settlement that was on the King's survey. But in reality, what he found was rubble of an old mansion that everyone knew about. I wanted to learn more about this old house. So I called Shannon Scott, 
a history buff down in Savannah, Georgia. The first thing I wanted to ask you was about that old mansion that was there. Oh, that's the, yeah, that's the Tories mansion Tories that burned, mansion. burned in 1929. Yeah. Well, the plantation property itself goes back to the 1740s. So it's like one of the original grants, probably from King George II. But the real family that took over the, what was left of the colonial mansion and then expanded it into kind of the, the more, let's say, modern-day Biltmore, if you'd like. That was the Tories family, and they expanded it. I think they expanded it to the 50,000, about the 50,000 square footage mark. And there were boathouses and guest houses and pool house and servants' quarters and things like that. But then the West family entered the picture of the house until it burned. And the West family had various business endeavors. Um, the daughter, Mrs. West, is most famously still alive at 107 years of age. Oh, wow. Um, what year did this house burn down? It burned down in 1929. In fact, when she was, I think, eh, I want to say she was maybe 12 or 10 or something, but she jumped out of the four-story window and I think broke her hip. Oh hundreds and hundreds of masterwork paintings burned up in the attic of that house. I mean centuries-old European stuff and probably recognizable paintings were just destroyed. It was a massive art collection, unfortunately, that, that burned up. In 1920, Rudolph Valentino, a famous silent film star, shot a film inside the house titled Stolen Moments. But you can see interior shots of the house in the movie Stolen Moments. The rumor is that all those marble columns that used to wrap around the house, which I think there were 45 of them, they're actually out there in the river itself. They just sadly squarely bulldozed a lot of it. You know, there were some ancient Egyptian sphinx at the front of that driveway that were stolen. And they were, I think they were two or 3,000 years old. So whoever lived here obviously was a collector, right? You know, it's unfortunate that it's gone because nothing, nothing in downtown Savannah could compare to it or no area plantation could compare to it. It just, it literally was beyond the pale as far as artisanship and just the way it was decorated. So that explains why tourists found bricks and pieces of pottery. That that brings me to my next point. So there is this um, mm -hmm. there's this guy, right? He's not an archaeologist. Mm -hmm. He's just a treasure hunter. And he's going around and... You're talking about the black diver guy. Yeah. Do you know anything about him? I do. Um, the Black Dive is Michael Torres' Instagram handle. This guy blurs the line of archaeology and TV personality, like angling for a show. And I've not met the guy face to face, but I've talked to some real archaeologists here in Savannah, and they've looked at his stuff. And he's definitely playing it up for the for the audience and for anybody who wants to try to fund his show. I think that's the thing, because there's just blatant falsehoods in there, blatant fakes. So, I mean, the guy's a bit of a hack, but hey, that's that's made for good TV, I'm sure. I mean, there's an archaeologist in Savannah, and I, I, I turned him on to the guy's channel on Instagram, and he looked at it, and he looked at the different things he was purporting to 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 have discovered. And he's just like, no, those ruins are actually the Greenwich house that was bulldozed and they're laying in near the river by the bluff. So he's faking that. This road he's walking alongside of is actually the canal behind Bonaventure Cemetery. <laughs> yes, I mean, it's just, it's kind of sad, but 
So now let's talk about the desecrated Jewish headstones scattered along the river. Here's the director of cemeteries for the city of Savannah, Georgia, Richard Geraci. He has all this video of him walking alongside, I guess, that bluff that's near the river next to the, uh-huh. the property. And there's a bunch uh-huh. of broken uh, tombstones everywhere. And a lot of them were of Jewish descent. And uh, he couldn't explain. He was saying that it was a like a mass grave, which, by the way, that doesn't. By definition, that's not a mass grave. That's just a bunch of broken tombstones. But my, my <laughs> question to you is, uh, how did those tombstones get there? <laughs> I'm glad you brought this up. What I've learned is Mr. Torres came and has been along our property, unbeknownst to us, on this big treasure hunt. One, he's not even authorized to do it because taking and removing treasures from our property is a violation to the ordinance. You can't just go and take an artifact and call it yours and take it home. He he went to the to the Jewish synagogue. Right. Synagogue reached down to us. Remember, Torres didn't call the police after making these discoveries. He also didn't contact Bonaventure Cemetery. Torres called the local synagogue and alerted them to a possible hate crime. So you can imagine what Richard Gerbasi was thinking when he got a call from the city. So I get a call from our city hall and basically they're like What's going on? There's some headstones, etc. Gervasi reassures me that there's a logical reason for all of this. Well, the headstones, so, so you're aware of what they are. The headstones were, years ago, they did a big project along the riverbank for erosion control. And they put a, a number of riprap along the bank to shore it up. He says the monument companies would donate their scrap headstones. Imagine you're the guy responsible for chiseling a name on a slab of granite. If you make a mistake, you have to start all over again. So they're, they're scraps. Basically, hmm. if you're a monument company and you, you make an error on a piece of stone, you can't fix it. You have to throw it away. I gotcha. That makes sense. I guess without knowing that, it seems pretty creepy, doesn't it? You know? Right. No, I believe me, it raises, we get questions. It's not a practice we do anymore this is before me, but we, we get questions at least, you know, two, three times a year just from curious visitors to the cemetery. Hey, we see these headstones. Of course, everyone thinks we're throwing bodies over the river. That's not the case. Just, just so happens to be that monument companies were taking their scraps, and since they can't keep them in their yard, they break them up and they put them and use them to shore up the riverbank. It was kind of a red flag to me when we met Mr. Torres out there, and he was also claiming there was bodies out there. And he couldn't identify the location that four days prior he saw these bodies. And I'm like, okay, well, what were the GIS coordinates? Or did they? I said, any archaeologist is going to know to call law enforcement if you find human remains. And he's like, well, it, it, it wasn't a very good archaeologist. Like, but anybody in their right mind would call law enforcement if they found remains in an unmarked grave, but he called the synagogue because, according to him, he felt there was a hate crime going on. He wanted to report it to him. So, we spent a half a day hacking through this vegetation with a machete that he said he was just four days there, four days prior, and I'm like, you sure you were here because there's nothing fresh cut? He's like, oh yeah, it was right in this area. I have it all on video. So, I... Never get the video. 
I said, well, look, I, we want to continue to search because this is important. If there truly are remains out there, we need to figure out one, who they, where they are, two, who they are, and where they belong. I said, if you have any sort of kind of waypoint that you remember seeing right around the time, he's like, yeah, there's a bronze urn out there. The bronze fire urn looks like it would be the front of the Lincoln Memorial. So interesting. So we go right to it and you can see where it was recently moved. And he's like, here's this urn. It was a drum of a washing machine. <laughs> you claim to be a treasure hunter and have an archaeologist and you misidentify a rusty drum of a washing machine as a bronze urn, a very decorative bronze urn. I'm like, okay, things aren't adding up. That's when the police officer and I started Googling him. <laughs> I've, I've seen this video that you're talking about and I did not see a body. And in fact, if you found a, a body in a, in a casket that's exposed, wouldn't you take detailed video of it? They basically were like, oh, look, a body. And then the camera pans and then they, oh, look, a tombstone. And so, I mean, you could pause it and look at it. I mean, it doesn't look like anything, you know? Right. I mean, if you really did find a body, you would like sit on the shot for a second and like examine it for at least a minute. But like this literally lasted seconds. Gervaisi says that the last thing he wants is a bunch of people showing up at his cemetery with shovels and metal detectors. Probably the most important takeaway, if you could share this, that, you know, remind people that you can't just go to private property or even public property and do any sort of treasure hunting or excavation without prior authorization and permits are required. Hey, you're just trying to find something just out of curiosity. It's a hobby. Mm -hmm. or metal detecting. It's a hobby. But a lot of these are protected resources that, while they're interesting to find, but in reality, if you find something of that, we should be turning over the property authorities. It's not finders, keepers, Correct. losers, weavers, you know? Yeah, because um, at the end of the day, our, our, our job as is, is public servants is to, to preserve this history. And right. when everyone throws it in the trunk of their car and take it, takes it home, we, we lose that piece of history. After my call with Richard Gervaisi, I called Taurus back. So you went in there to Bonaventure, which is city property. And yeah. did you get any permission from the city? No, <laughs> no. So, so tell me, like, what was the thought process there? Uh, so, you know, I found the map and Bonaventure was along that, um, along the route to the missing settlement. So when I came across all those tombstones, my intent wasn't to dig on Bonaventure. I didn't even really dig. It was, it was right out in the open. So um, when I found the grave that took, I called it because they were all Jewish graves. I was like, holy shit, this is a mass Jewish grave. Most people, most reasonable people would think that's what it looked like. So I called the Jewish community and I got them down there. I was like, look at this. And then they reached out to the city and the city said that they conducted an extensive search and they couldn't find anything. And they said that what I found was a washer and dryer. It's clearly a casket. <laughs> so that when you found the human remains, that clip, I have it right. timestamped and I've looked at it probably a million times. And the camera kind of approaches the, what appears to be that grave and then it whip pans 
off the frame and it's so blurry that I can make heads oh, I or have, tails. I out have of plenty it. of pictures. Do you have pictures? Have can pictures. you send send me I that? Because, I can yet. Yep. Okay, because like from looking at the video, I mean, it just looks like a like a box, and and then you guys move on. Because like if I stumbled on a on a human remains, I would probably hang on the shot a little bit longer. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we didn't. We thought it was a lockbox, and I didn't want anyone to know that there may have been precious metal there. When we come back from the break, we're going to switch gears and talk about Seafair Exploration. You know, the company suing Michael Torres. I managed to get Kyle Kennedy on the phone to tell me his side of the story. Did you answer why you went in there without a permit or without permission? Uh, cause I was just on my way somewhere else. I was pass- literally passing through. But I mean, the whole, the whole point of this is to go and shoot a documentary or something there based off all these finds. Do you feel like maybe you kind of ruined that chance by upsetting the city? Well, I, I videoed it all. So you think- I videoed everything. Okay. So you have everything you need for this documentary. Yeah, I got everything. That wasn't even what I was looking for, but it was right there. I mean, I videoed everything. Has the city, I mean, I know they're kind of pissed at you, right? Because they even said it, <laughs> yeah. they said it in that report that they're like, yeah, what's, mo- what's most disturbing about this whole thing is that somebody's going around digging stuff. But I mean, that document, like that report says that you did find something of cultural significance. So, I mean, they, they don't Correct. deny that, right? Yeah, now they're, now they're grasping the straw to figure out how to shut me up. Michael Torres is sick and tired of everyone calling him a con artist. He says he is the victim in all this. If you ask him, the real con man in this story is Kyle Kennedy, the CEO of Seafair Exploration. Torres says that Kennedy has tarnished his name. Every time I talk to Torres, he reminds me that there's only one person who routinely finds treasure, and it's not Kyle Kennedy. Yeah, and you have to be physically fit to go out there, too. That's another thing. Look at Kyle. You think Kyle's going to... Kyle gets seasick. <laughs> like, you got to get out there and actually do it. It's, it's labor-intensive. It's, it's, you're looking for months. He's not going to get out there and do it. Why, why is Kyle in this business anyway, if he's not an explorer? It, he, he, it was the easiest. He knows how to set up a publicly traded company. He is a very, he's a, he's a snake oil salesman. He knows how to sell himself. He's a shameless self-promoter. Some, some scam he was running before this. And the SEC caught him. So he needed a new scam. So he went out with Mel, um, with Mel Fisher's group and said, huh, this doesn't look hard. I'll convince everyone that I'm doing this. He famously said to his crew, the treasure's not in the sea, it's in the stock. Go, and go to go to Seafair's like uh, message board and read what the investors are saying. Okay. Like it's this guy's just foolish. He's just a bull. He's a he's a snake oil salesman. Well, it, it it'll be interesting to get him to talk. I Good wonder, luck. Yeah. Good luck. In order to get Kyle Kennedy, I first had to go through his attorney, Craig Huffman. Hi, is this Craig? This is Craig Huffman. Hey, Craig. Yes, it is. <laughs> Let's say you mm-hmm. did find the mother load. Who would that treasure belong to? Who owns that treasure? Under the permit with the state, what you have is you have the rights to that recovery. If you get the recovery, you have the rights as the finder to keep a certain percentage. 
This particular wreckage that that Seafarer is looking for is a Spanish galleon. And I've heard about the Supreme Court case where they decided they ruled in favor of Spain, saying that they did not abandon their treasure, their ship sunk, and therefore it still belongs to them. There is a differentiation, though, that has to be made, and that goes back to the Shipwreck Act of 1988. The differentiation is this, is whether it was a commercial vessel or whether it was an actual warship, okay? Warships are considered Navy vessels, and a country never gives up their claim. A merchant vessel, which the vast majority of the 1715 fleet were, were all commercial vessels, okay? Just being armed didn't make you a warship. All commercial vessels were armed at the time. But you had to have somewhat been on the rolls of the king's navy for Spain to make any claim. Maybe the whole point of this whole thing is not to recover the mother load. Maybe the strategy is much simpler than that. Remember what Torres said earlier, that the treasure is not in the sea, it's in the stock. Now, if you find an actual load, you could have a stock price that could go from sub-penny where it is now, you know, to 25 cents or something. It's just, it's the nature of the beast being in the stock market. And I, I'm not a stock market expert, but the current situation is that it, it is way below a penny. I mean, it's like 0. 0.0051 from a business standpoint, you know, and an operation standpoint. How does Seafarer stay afloat? Oh, they have situations where they have uh, money coming in from different ventures as they've gone into. And then they have people who are, putting more investment money in. This whole time, I couldn't understand how these guys made money. Then I learned that Kyle Kennedy has a second company called Blockchain Logistics. This is where the majority of his revenue comes from. After my call with Seafarer's attorney, Craig Huffman, he introduced me to the man in charge, Kyle Kennedy. This is Kyle. Hey, Kyle. This is Javier with uh, Pretend. Is this a bad time? Oh, hi. No, Javier, this is not a bad time, and thank you for asking. So, Kyle, tell me, I mean, what got you into this business, into the treasure hunting business? Well, it, it goes back a long time. My previous business was I owned my own broker-dealer, and I specialized in taking companies public. And my company took over 600 companies public around the United States. Kyle Kennedy says that he sold his business and used that money to finance what would eventually become Seafarer Exploration. In the marketplace, there's only two ways to make money. You can make it with time or you can make it with risk. That was a little bit of my upbringing and, and I, I had the chance to meet Sam Walton. Sam Walton, by the way, was the CEO of Walmart. I had a big position in Walmart and went to one of his shareholder meetings and I got to sort of meet him in a little crowd of about 15 of us uh, before he went on stage. And, and he made a comment that really stuck with me. And he, he said he's made more millionaires than anybody alive. That he's made more millionaires? More millionaires, yeah, than anybody alive. And I thought, man, I would love to do that because if I could make all my clients money, you know, you get a lot of respect and appreciation for that, you know, and you feel good about, about what you've done, you know. And so if I'm if I'm reading between the lines, I guess, what better way to make money than finding treasure, right? Yeah. Yes. Have you got it, man. 
Way before Michael Torres was ever in the picture, Kyle Kennedy says that he was approached by a treasure hunter who needed to raise money for his salvage business. Uh, this old guy, his name was Judd. He came into my office uh, one day and, and said, hey, do you, you know, can you raise me money for this treasure project? And I said, no, and sent him on his way. I said, that's not what we do. And, and, and three months later, he came back and he said, look, you didn't take me seriously. And he goes, so I brought you some proof. I brought these cannonballs. I brought a big nail. I brought a picture of an anchor. He, he gave me all this proof. And he said, this is real. The wreck that Kyle Kennedy is talking about is off of Juneau Beach, Florida, which is a little north of West Palm Beach. What we have determined since that point in time is that it's a massive wreck. It's huge. It's probably dated in the mid-1500s. And after sitting down with them, they took me out treasure hunting. I spent literally a week with them. Kyle Kennedy says that he spent the whole week on a salvage boat looking for the Juno Beach wreck. I saw that it was extremely unprofessional. And so I observed what they did. And it was like, wow, anybody could do this. But Kyle Kennedy says that he still wasn't convinced. He asked the treasure hunters, how much do you think that wreck is worth if we found it? I asked them about the size of the wreck. I said, this old man says it's a billion dollars. I said, is he off? And they go, oh, he's way off. And I go, so what, 10 million, 20 million? You know, what, what's more realistic? And they go, oh, you're going the wrong way. It's several billion. I went, what? No way. Okay, you got to be pulling my leg, man. But that that's my question. I mean, is it several billion in in what in in what it's worth once you find it or is several billion in coins and silver how are they determining that yeah because i asked them that question specifically i said look i crunched numbers for a living and back me in how you got there the treasure hunters told them that the wreck that mel fisher recovered 40 years ago from the atosha shipwreck was valued at 400 million dollars in silver today that same treasure is worth 900 million dollars and I went, wow, how can you determine that? And they said, well, the nail you brought us is over four feet long. A four foot long nail? That's a pretty freaking big nail. Not only did they find a nail that's the size of a small child, these guys found several large cannonballs and a rather large anchor at the Juno site. Put it all together, and this is starting to look like a gigantic ship. To shoot these big cannonballs, you needed a really big cannon. And you had to run that cannon inside the ship, reload it, and then shove it back out to shoot it. And you had to have the same cannon on the other side of the ship to balance the ship. This tells us sort of the the width of the ship uh, to a certain degree, and this ship would have been a massive, massive ship. And a massive ship, theoretically, has a massive treasure. Our estimates are, is, is, is you got a ship that's almost twice as big as the Atosha, and it potentially could have carried more gold. So our belief is you, you got a valuation out there close to $15 billion. And I just went, wow. Well, let me ask you a lot of questions going through my brain right now. Have you found any silver from the Juno site? No, 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 we have not. You know, and, and part of the reason being is because of the fraud. I have a year that we've had to go through. Uh, we've had an unbelievable amount of fraud uh, in the treasure business. So, something I'd never seen 
in the brokerage business. In the brokerage business, you, you get one or two guys that are bad here and there. You know, if you got a really big office, you might have a bad guy in it, like Bernie Madoff as an example. But in, in the treasure business, 100% of the people I've met that have been in the treasure business have been bad. They all lie. They all cheat. They all steal. And, and it's 100%. It, it's not 99. It's 100. <laughs> okay. And, and I've had to fire 50, 60 people at least uh, for lying, cheating, stealing, just all kinds of just bad stuff. And why is that? Why why do you think that the industry draws out so many fraudsters? The reason being is you get these beach bums for the summer that come out during the summer and they'll take boats, all kinds of makes and models of boats, and they simply dig hole after hole after hole in the ocean floor looking for treasure. And and oddly enough they find it. So you punch enough holes where one of these ships wrecked, and eventually you'll find some treasure. The problem is, is they'll go to the, the pawn shop, they'll pawn the, the silver coin they found that day, uh, maybe it was a piece of eight or something. They'll go get their drug fix. You won't see them for a couple of days. And then eventually they'll show back up uh, to dig another hole. To bring you back to the original question when I asked, have you found any silver? And you said, no, not because of all these fraudsters. So do you feel like they have been preventing you from finding it, even though you have a pretty good hunch that there is a very large wreckage underneath that water? And, and I'll give you the reason why I say that. Kyle Kennedy tells me that he partnered with one of the shady salvage companies and they pulled a fast one on him. When they went into business together, he thought that they had all the permits to dig up the treasure, but it turns out that wasn't 100% true. Our area is a 10 square mile area that's our permitted area. And that's giving, given to us under, under a federal admiralty claim. So the United States government has given us that site. And he's right. When he partnered with the other treasure hunter, Kyle Kennedy acquired ownership of the Juno site. That means he has a right to explore the site all he wants, but there's a catch. In order to recover treasure in state waters, seafarer exploration would actually need a recovery permit, which the other treasure hunter did not have. He told me he had a permit, and he lied to me about it. He Hmm. deceived me. Kyle Kennedy says that he was a victim of a con job. He just didn't know it. And you say, why would he do that if he's your partner? Because the government gave him that site. He sublet the site to me on a year-to-year basis. He also needed to get permission from his former partner. It's kind of a messy issue, which we're not going to get into the details of, but basically, Kyle Kennedy claims that his partner used him to raise money for the dig. I have to get permission from Judd because it's his site. Hmm. So he gives me a year-to-year contract, and we're supposed to split the treasure 50-50. But according to Kennedy, his partner never intended to split the treasure with him. Kennedy says that the treasure hunting company intentionally had seafarer exploration searching the wrong area. The first fraud was telling me he had a permit when he didn't have a permit and faking it. The second fraud, which was even worse, was he allowed me to dig five years in the wrong area. I want to go back to something that you told me. You were a broker... And you made this transition, and then you told me about risk. 
boy, what you just painted for me, like this story that you just told me, sounds like a lot of risk. Why would you, why would you leave one business to go to another one? I mean, you must have been bleeding. Like, why, why do this? Why take the risk? Well, you got to keep in mind, I spent five years digging in the wrong spot, you know, and, and it cost me almost a million dollars a year, almost, you know, to, to run through my operations, to be a public entity, to play the audit costs. What I saw was I could take all of my clients at that time, they could invest in the company, become shareholders. And when I found treasure, the upside on their stock would be tremendous. And all of them would make a fortune. My family, my brothers, my parents, my daughters, all of them would make a fortune if I could dig up this treasure. And, and what I didn't understand, because I was too naive, too stupid, whatever you want to say, is that all these people were criminals, and they were all out for themselves with their own agendas. And the vast majority of them were just drug addicts looking for their next drug fix, and they would steal everything you got. You know, I'd, I'd put computer equipment on there, and it gets stolen. I'd put dive equipment on there, and it gets stolen. You know, I'd put tanks on there, and they get stolen. They, they even stole the horns off the top of my boat. I mean, th these guys were just horrible. Everything I've done in my life has been very, very professional. And, and, and to go from that to like the scum of the earth was a huge culture shock for me, for one. I didn't see that coming. I didn't see that it would take this amount of time to, to accomplish my goals, which still have not been accomplished. My next question for you is, do you have recovery permits for either of the locations? Yes. Yeah, what we've had is full recovery on the Juno Beach site. Now, there's a lot of inside baseball stuff going on here, but the bottom line is that Seafair Exploration inherited ownership of the Juno site. That means that Seafair Exploration owns the site. It's theirs forever. This is highly uncommon in the industry. However, just because they own it doesn't mean that any treasure they find belongs to them. For that, Seafair Exploration will need a recovery permit. Now, I've gone back to the state and said, okay, renew my recovery permit. And they're in the process of renewing that recovery permit hmm. right now. Let me ask you a question. Let's assume that you get the recovery permits for both of those sites. Okay. Does that give you the right to salvage in those sites? It does. Yeah, that's what the recovery permit is, is full salvage. We'll actually dig it up, we'll clean it up, we'll put it in storage, and we'll use it for various museums around the world. The one thing I don't understand is that I'm aware of the Supreme Court and the, the fact that they rejected the appeal for another salvage company to salvage a shipwreck from a Spanish ship. If the Melbourne site is a Spanish ship, if it's a Concepcion, like you think it is, wouldn't that exclude you from the rights of salvaging that? No, not at all. The, the only things that have been rejected are ships that are warships. I just kind of assumed that if, if Spain owned the ship and they didn't abandon it because the ship wrecked, that they would still own the rights to it. In, in our fleet, there was two warships, the Admiralty and the Capitana. 
were two warships that were sent to protect the fleet. All the other ships were merchant ships. So the Concepcion, if that is the ship we have, the Concepcion uh, was a merchant ship. So Spain can't claim it as a warship. I went back and asked James Gould about this. You know, the attorney who represented the Kingdom of Spain in the Supreme Court. And he says that Kyle Kennedy is wrong about this. There are multiple treaties and laws prohibiting companies like Seafair from recovering culturally significant items. First, sunken military ships, Spanish, French, British, U.S., all have the same principle of sovereign immunity. In other words, military ships belong to the country of origin, 100%. But Cal Kennedy says he's not looking for a military ship. He's going after a merchant ship. Gould says, not so fast. He points to the UNESCO Convention, an international treaty signed in 1970 prohibiting the transfer of ownership of property with cultural significance. The UNESCO Convention is an example uh, of an international agreement that applies to ships and other human remains, activities, human artifacts, etc., that have been in the water underwater for more than a hundred years. So not only is there precedent by the Supreme Court rulings, there are several treaties clearly stating that this kind of exploring is not allowed. Seafair exploration may have ownership to certain areas, but that doesn't mean that if they find it, they won't get challenged in court. How, how long has Seafair been in operation? 13 years. June of this year made our 13th year. And in those 13 years, what has been your greatest find? Uh, Tim Reynolds. <laughs> <laughs> Where was he hiding? Tim Reynolds is, Tim Reynolds is the guy that, that's helped me invent this machine that can literally see under the sand. Is he an engineer? You know, he is. Uh-huh. He is. Yeah. In other words, in the 13 years his company has been around, Seafair Exploration hasn't found anything of significance. Not a single thing. But Kyle Kennedy still has hope. And it rides on one guy named Tim Reynolds, who is helping him develop technology that can help him scan the ocean floor. If you recall, that's the same technology that Michael Torres was hired to design. Tim Reynolds was one of the first guys to tell me this guy Torres is a fraud and he's cheating you. You know, Tim Reynolds has been just phenomenal, extremely talented. So you told me that what you were going to bring into this industry was some of that professionalism, some technology that could really be a game changer. Right. Yeah, my original belief was simply to get into the business, go out and, and dig up as much treasure as we could, make my shareholders as wealthy as I possibly could through what we found. Kyle Kennedy has had a change of plans. Instead of looting the ocean floor... He wants to set a standard for the salvage industry and preserve the treasure that he and his company discover. The academic world hates it because the treasure hunters destroy everything in their path. He says that the treasure salvage industry has earned a reputation for being pirates. Instead, Kyle Kennedy says that he wants to elevate the industry by following archaeological guidelines. And I don't sell the treasure because the biggest beef they have is that any treasure that's found is immediately sold. This whole time, I assumed Kyle Kennedy was looking for the treasure to become an instant billionaire. But that's no longer the plan. They can't study it. They don't get to see how it laid in the ground. I mean, you know, they got all these little pet peeves that none of them are met with the other treasure hunters. 
How will you make money then? How will you make the millions and billions of dollars for your stakeholders? Oh, it's easy. Oh, it's easy, easy, easy. What, what happens is several things. All right. Uh, I'll start with the easiest first. There's multiple cable channels. Uh, every major cable channel has interviewed us. National Geographic, History Channel, Travel Channel, Discovery Channel, Netflix, uh, all, all these major cable channels have interviewed us. The, the one that's offered us the most money so far is a major production company in Hollywood. And they came in and offered us more money than anybody. And it's into the millions of dollars. So it looks like Michael Torres isn't the only one looking for a TV deal. The, the one group in, in, in Hollywood wants to do 26 shows and a two-hour full-length movie on us. Hmm. And they use Class A actors. Their last show had Tom Cruise as their lead. I mean, they, they, these guys are top-notch. And so are their movies. Second thing, far more important, is our stock is near record lows. We're trading at about half a penny. And for good reason. For 13 years, I have not found treasure. And, and if you have a company that's failed for 13 years, then their stock is, is going to be in the toilet for sure. And, and that's where we are. Now, it doesn't help me any that I go out and hire a hoodlum, a con artist like Torres, that hurts the reputation of the company and also hurts our stock price because people go, oh, my God, he hired a con artist and we didn't find any treasure and I'm selling, I'm getting out. And that pushes your price down. Kyle Kennedy admits that his stock is virtually worthless, but he's confident that things are about to turn around. And the point in time it turns is when the sea searcher actually finds treasure. When it finds treasure, our stock price will go up. The sea searcher is the ship that Michael Torres was supposed to design. It's reportedly able to scan the ocean floor, looking for different types of metals. The big story really is going to be the sea searcher. I could take the sea searcher and fly it across a field, and I could tell you in that field where every landmine is. I can fly it down a dirt road, tell you where every landmine is down that dirt road. This thing is powerful, and there's nothing else like it in the world. And when we come out and prove this to the world, I promise you, Javier, that's going to be the story. So you said you put the finishing touches on it. When, when does it actually uh, hit the waters? I, I need the water to be six feet or less. And Friday looks like the first day it's going to be six feet or less. So if it is six feet or less, I'll have our device out there working first time ever on Friday. That's pretty exciting. It is exciting, man. If you find something exciting, let me know, man. I'd, I'd like to, to hear all about it. Michael Torres says not to believe a single word Kyle Kennedy is telling me. Oh, it's a scam. Yeah, it's, it's a scam. Oh, it absolutely is. Yeah, I, it, and it took me a while to figure it out, too, I mean, because he's convincing. I mean, the guy's uh, essentially a used car salesman or a, a snake oil salesman. Like, he convinced me. He tricked me. They're claiming that there's billions of dollars on this ship, and there was nowhere near that much. So no, the so the ships went down. Spain, I think, salvaged three of them, maybe maybe more, because they were in shallow water. But the Lacatan, the Concepcion, and I think a few others are still missing. You believe and, that there is a Spanish galleon down there somewhere, right? Yeah, no, yeah, but it's nowhere near his site. 
And even if he finds it, it's not his. Right, it's Bane. Here's the thing that I'm not sure you're getting from these episodes. You, the listener, are removed from all this. So to you, all this must seem really silly. And maybe it is. But I've been listening to these stories for months now. Honestly, I don't even know who to believe. Is Michael Torres lying? Is Seafair Exploration telling me the truth? You might think the answer is obvious, but sometimes it's hard for me to tell. I enjoyed talking to Kyle Kennedy. He answered all my questions without any hesitation, and he's running a legitimate business which regularly files with the SEC. His business strategy is a little risky, but hey, to each their own. And I really, really enjoy my conversations with Michael Torres. He's fun. He's an interesting guy. Who wouldn't want to have a beer with him? But the next time we meet, we're going to get down to business. You're going to get the answers you've been waiting for. Does Michael Torres have a PhD in aeronautical engineering? Does he have two Purple Heart medals? Did he serve two tours in Afghanistan? I have the answers. That's next time on Pretend. Back in 1888, the notorious serial killer murdered and mutilated the bodies of five women in London. His identity? A mystery, perhaps. Until now. The savagery of Jack the Ripper's crimes terrorized the residents of London. This is the height of the Jack the Ripper murders. There's a heightened police presence. The newspapers are going crazy about covering the Jack the Ripper case. And there are wanted posters all around Whitechapel saying, beware, Jack the Ripper, and he's still prepared to kill. In autumn of 1888, the world was rocked by the savage murders of five women in Whitechapel, London. The investigation into those murders spawned a worldwide obsession that continues to this very day. Join criminal defense attorney Jennifer Taylor and me, investigative podcast host Chris Williamson, as we travel back to Whitechapel to try and answer the question that has eluded history for over 120 years. Just who was Jack the Ripper? Vanished, Season 2. The first of four all-new investigations begins this Halloween. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast player. Creative Babble.